Yeah, good morning to you. It's 14 minutes past seven. And you may have uh, heard among all the coronavirus-related news over the last couple of days that the Education Ministry announced yesterday it will begin the new school year on April 9th. But, and this is a bigger but, students won't be attending schools physically. Online classes will be held starting first with middle and high school senior students and then introduced step-by-step elementary uh, through to high school grades, depending on ages. uh, And we will be informed individually by our various schools how that's going to work. The ministry said it will supply the necessary equipment for online remote learning. For those who lack such devices, as well as access to the internet and customised learning contents will be provided for students with special needs like Braille and uh, other difficulties. It's going to be a challenging time. Uh, it also means that the college entrance exam or sunan will be postponed by a couple of weeks to December 3rd. And what about those kindergartens and daycare centres? Well, they're going to be delayed indefinitely. Difficult to get the three and four-year-olds on online learning, I presume. But uh, does pose some serious challenges for parents, especially parents who might have one kindergarten child, another one in elementary school, maybe working from home themselves, how you manage all of that. Let's um, welcome on the line from a US perspective, Professor John Zellner, social epidemiologist at the University of Michigan. Good morning to you. Good morning. So, I mean, this, this kind of effort with schools, first of all, while we're on that subject. How important is it that school kids are kept apart for as long as possible during this pandemic? I mean, I think certainly during this period, that's this very acute phase, right, where we're still certainly in the U.S. and, and, and the, it's not so far behind in, in South Korea that the, you know, the, we've, we've had this huge spike in cases and now we're waiting to see what happens in this next phase. I think it makes a lot of sense to keep kids out of school for the time being. And then we have to start slowly, you know, getting our arms around understanding how people, um, how, what the role of children is in the spread of this particular pathogen. Um, That's one of the things that makes it kind of tricky and interesting, but also so difficult is that small children are less likely to be symptomatic and have the most severe outcomes, which on the one hand, it certainly is, is a positive thing. Um, but on the other hand, we don't really know how infectious little kids are relative to symptomatic adults. And so that's something I think as we get a better sense of that, we're going to have better guidance about what to do about um, schools and daycares and, and so forth. But until then, I think it's smart to take the sort of aggressive and conservative stand that we're going to hold off on reopening schools until we really understand what the implications of that are. Yeah, and obviously that is the situation across all the states in the U.S. as well, school systems shutting their doors. Uh, there has been not exactly universal compliance in some areas, for example, church services, as we've seen here in careers as well. But do you feel at this point like the U.S. extension of its social distancing guidelines until the end of April is is sufficient? Or is that just to allow people to digest the next phase and then wait and see and likely extend it? It's a good question. I think, I think certainly the decision to go to the end of April, um, at least, was the right one. Um, and I think, you know, the the long term management of this really requires that we start an aggressive testing program, right? Both in terms of doing serological testing to figure out how much immunity there is out in the population, and also testing the 
you know, known contacts of people who become um, ill. And so, you know, basically, you know, when we kind of close down everything, we're buying ourselves time to do something else. But it's not a solution in and of itself, because the more people out there who remain immune, um, the, the more likelihood there is, uh, or sorry, susceptible, the, the more likelihood there is a, a second wave of this thing. So school closure, lockdowns, this is not a solution um, in a long-term sense, but what it does is let us recharge our capacity and hopefully we'll start seeing things like antivirals coming out of the pipeline that might mitigate some of this, although I think we need to be only cautiously optimistic about that. And then, of course, over the longer term, we may see a vaccination, but we can't stay in lockdown for 12 to 15 months, right? So we have to think about how to navigate um, this middle period. Let's talk a little bit about some of the socially most vulnerable groups, though, as well, uh, and, and how they may have less of a voice right now during this during this outbreak. It's of major concern that, for example, that there may be uh, elderly populations on their own at home who have not been checked on for a while. There may be people, uh, well, we know there are many people who have no homes at all who are homeless, for example. Yeah. How do we yeah, no, try to ensure they're okay? Yeah, I think this is a really challenging problem, and I think it's made, in the United States, it's made all the more acute by the fact that we don't have um, a really comprehensive, universal um, medical or public health system. Um, and so we're really seeing those inequalities in, in stark relief, um, both in terms of, you know, who is at risk of getting exposed, right? So you can start there, who gets to work from home, even if that's difficult, versus having to go out and deliver packages, work in the supermarket, work in a hospital. Um, and all those things come down to, you know, social power, social class, race, um, and, and income. And then so there's your risk of getting exposed. And then there's the potential other health, um, underlying health risks you have that might make you more likely to have a severe outcome. And then there's what happens to you when that severe outcome happens. Do you go to a hospital that can, that can treat you in the United States? Or are you going to delay seeking care because mm. you can't pay for it, uh, right? So these are all things that we have to think about. And, and we're in Michigan, where I live, we're certainly seeing an explosion of cases in Detroit, um, which is about 50 miles um, from Ann Arbor, where the University of Michigan is. And it's like two completely different worlds in terms of the risks and the services that are available to people. Um, and so, you know, that's a longer-term problem that we're not going to be able to fix 100% right now. But I mm. think, you know, a key element to our response is really going to be sort of patching those holes in the short term. Um, and then hopefully we'll take a serious look at the way we do things afterwards. Right. I mean, because we're going to pick up the thread of vulnerable groups, particularly the homeless, um, in, in a few minutes. And it's useful to hear your thoughts on, on the sort of bird's eye view of all that. Um, maybe we can also hone in a little bit on the New York area, because it's Sure. been particularly susceptible. Um, is, is it that they're just doing more vigorous testing so the numbers are higher, as we've seen raised as an argument in various other places throughout this outbreak? Is it because it's a global area, more global than other parts, more crowded? Are there other factors that we're not touched on there? Sure. No, it's a great question, and I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I don't know that I can give a completely satisfying answer. I think there are any number of things going on, right? So... New York, certainly the largest city, um, that the outbreak would start there earlier than other places is not in any way surprising. 
Um, and so, you know, when we're making comparisons across places in the U.S., we have to remember that New York would probably always be kind of a leading indicator, right? So we're seeing more things happen after the fact in other parts of the country that suggests that, you know, the similar dynamics are at play um, depending where you are in the country. But with that said, you know, the, the burden of disease in New York does seem to be a lot higher. Some of that may have to do with population density, although I think some of it may also have to do with the age structure of the population. So you have older people, um, you may have more older people who are at higher risk. And then I think they have been quite aggressive um, with the use of testing. New York was one of the first states to kind of start running its own tests um, using private laboratories. Um, and so, you know, all of those things could be coming together. I think it's, you know, maybe the earliness of it might have something to do with the international nature of the city. But I think it, it's going to be hard for us to really figure out what's going on there in, until all is said and done. And I think the other thing is places are, we're seeing now that places are reporting deaths um, in different ways. So in Italy, there's been massive underreporting of coronavirus deaths um, in Lombardy, and that there may be no malfeasance associated with that, but it's just they're reporting the deaths of the people who got a test, and there may be many people who have died both outside of New York um, and, and even within who who died of, of COVID-19, but who didn't get a test for whatever reason. So right. I think, you know, we're going to have to wait and see, basically. Understand. There is the other... I mean, coming back to the the vulnerable aspect of this, the, the the other less than savory idea that if you are rich, you will be better off in this outbreak. It's something that you told CNBC that that being rich increases your likelihood of of being fine. I mean, is that really the case that the older you get, i.e., if you're seventy plus, um, do, do we see that continuing to be the case? That's a yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I I would say if you're well off, you're rich relative to other people your age, right? So I think age is definitely, you know, a significant determiner of outcomes here. Um, and if you're very wealthy and you're in your 70s or 80s, um, you certainly stand a, a worse chance than somebody who's in their 20s or 30s by and large. But, you know, if you think about the differences in the the health risks, the comorbidities that pe- that younger people with a lower socioeconomic status have relative to wealthier people of the same age, um, there I think you really can see something, you know, quite divergent, right? So people who have, you know, may have diabetes, may have some respiratory issues possibly associated with smoking or what have you, things that are all kind of cluster around um, being poor, having less access to resources is going to make a huge difference. But I do take your point that you know, we don't want to ignore the role of age here, right? And we don't want to ignore the fact that the biology of the pathogen is this thing that's really driving much of these dynamics. But often we kind of forget to go one level down and say, okay, well, people are dying. But amongst the people who are dying in one group, you know, what does the distribution of this look like, right? And and what could we be doing to slow that down? So I think, you know, when we think about children, 20, 30, 40-year-old people who are dying, um, you know, at least anecdotally, it certainly looks like, you know, the burden is falling much harder on racial and ethnic minorities and people um, with less means. And and I think that's just something we need to, to be paying much closer attention to. Well, thank you for helping to draw our attention, Professor John Zellner out of the University of Michigan. Thank you.